Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Justin Canoe, the co-founder of The Holler. TNHoller.com, at the TN Holler is the website. Subscribe to our emails. And we survive on your small dollar monthly donations. We're user supported, so that stuff all really helps. Big, big thank you to everybody who's already doing that. Tennessean columnist and old school politico, Keel Hunt, who you have probably read and you may recognize his name. Keel, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to meet you. You have been a steady voice throughout a lot of turbulence. How do you kind of describe yourself? Well, I used to say I'm somewhere between an Alexander Republican and an Al Gore Democrat. It's been a while. <laughs> and I'm not sure any of that means much to anybody anymore. My story, I grew up in Nashville over on the east side. I think I'm the only Nashvilleian, Justin, whose mom and dad were elected to the Metro Council. I'm pretty sure. And so I grew up in all that. It made me appreciate people who offer themselves, you know, for election. Right after high school, um, I went to work at the Tennessean newspaper. I was there a total of 10 years, city hall, state capitol. Worked in Washington for a while. I used to tell people I was chief of the Washington Bureau. It was just me. And of course, the Tennessean at the time, one of the leading Democratic editorial voices in the country, National Banner, Republican, in terms of its ownership and editorial, you know, we sort of fight tooth and nail. I think Nashville and Middle Tennessee were well served. I think most cities that have two newspapers have been well served. And of course, the sad thing is we don't have that many anymore. Right. 74, I was assigned to cover the governor's race. And that's how I met uh, Lamar Alexander. I mean, he was running for governor. President Nixon resigned. And then all of a sudden, one month ahead of the general election in 74, uh, President Ford pardons the former president Nixon. Totally skewed any election chances for Republicans. Lamar lost that race. Governor Blanton later went to prison and he actually was not convicted for selling pardons. Uh, there was plenty of other trouble. Liquor store licensing, which is what he did go to prison for. Highway construction, bid rigging and bad stuff. And I left the Tennessean in 77 to go to work in Alexander's, what was going to be his 78 race uh, for governor. I think we were sitting in the Memphis airport waiting for a connection to Nashville. And he said, look, I'm, uh, I think I'm going to run again. And the next thing I knew, Tom Ingram called me, would I be interested? And I said, uh, well, I probably would. But, the, you know, I kind of done whatever I was going to be able to do with Tennessee. And so I said, yeah, I became uh, two or three things. One was coordinator of the governor's policy group. He said, well, okay, when we work on speeches, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do that like I did for Senator Howard Baker. You can write whatever you want to write, as long as I can say whatever I want to say. <laughs> period in my life uh, that I met Marcia, who became my wife. And when we married in 81, my best man was Lamar Alexander. <laughs> you know, so you, you just have this layered relationship with, with, with anybody you know, and that's true here. Tell me about the book that you wrote, Crossing the Isle, about bipartisanship. It's hard to believe that there's ever been bipartisanship. Yeah. Crossing the Isle came out oh, a few weeks before the 2018 election. It's essentially a bunch of stories about things that happened that helped move Tennessee forward in the 1980s and the 1990s by way of fundamental high-level cooperation by elected officials, Democrats and Republicans. How did General Motors come to Tennessee? How did the Titans come to Nashville and not to Memphis? You know, all these are, to me, fascinating stories. 
to know that government can work. Ned McCorder became Speaker of the House, followed Alexander as governor. Bob Corker, Phil Bredesen. What do you think has changed? What was the turning point? That's the question, because it did change. It has not changed in the sense that good things still happen, because we still have good people in government. You know, we don't hear so much about them maybe now because the rancor and the trouble and the hyper-partisanship. But more generally now, of course, there's this dysfunction. So there were different reasons for this change. I mentioned how the Nashville banner went away. The four big cities in Tennessee each lost a daily newspaper during the 80s and 90s. The Memphis Press Seminar, the Knoxville Journal, this was huge. Meanwhile, you had the rise of social media, conservative talk radio in Tennessee. Rush Limbaugh and whoever you want name inspired Phil Valentine, Steve Gill. You know, suddenly these were very prominent drum beaters where maybe we, we saw that profoundly was when Governor Don Sundquist, Republican, he proposes a state income tax. It was almost immediately overwhelmed by the social effects of conservative talk radio, particularly Valentine and Gill. Caravans of horn honking automobiles driving around Tennessee State Capitol when the legislature was inside trying to what they do. And it shuts that down. I think you make a great point drawing a direct line between the cooperation and behavior of the legislature and light being shined on it by the media. When you have papers closing and resources being drained from newspapers and journalism, journalism itself being under attack half the time seems to be a green light for disorderly behavior. Well, yeah, to me, that's the most insidious effect of all of this tearing down of trust in news media past three years, direct influence of President Trump. Is it justified now? I don't think so. But it's it's affecting the national conversation. What I think of as a collapse in our civic space, people afraid to say something out loud, but, you know, even within their own families, it's not healthy. The rising conservatism among voters across the South, you know, was, was real. We go back to the 50s. School desegregation and the reaction to that, the war in Vietnam, Nixon's Southern strategy, reach out and persuasively grab the George Wallace voters, lifelong traditional conservative Democrat voters who now became Republican. And there could be 11 books about that. Yeah, there are. (laughs) Was the creation of these, you know, what I call the super majorities. You know, we've had it both ways in Tennessee. There was a super majority Democrat and then now it's it's the other way. It's caused a uh, shrinkage of competition. The only thing worse than a two-party system is a one-party system. You know, even a supermajority is okay until it starts acting like one. (laughs) Right. Arrogance. Yeah. A lot of uh, taking for granted. Two of the comments that we've had. One is, I think we just sold you a book, so that's good. Harriet Dembe says, new to Tennessee, looking forward to reading this book. Thank you, Harriet. Harriet. And then Maddie Castleman says, mainstream media lie. There's always a comment or two like that. And and I would say to Maddie, yeah, some do, but not all. And politicians lie too. And I think our job is to sift through it and find the truth and not throw out the baby with the bathwater without journalism, without an informed yeah. populace. This country is in real trouble. So I see your, your Trump logo well, and try to get to the bottom of everything and, and question him as much as you question the media, because I promise you not everything coming out of his mouth is 100% true either. So I just wanted to address that because I appreciate that they're watching and commenting, even when we may not agree about everything. We don't need to rehash everything that happened with Cassidy, but I would just ask you, because you were speaking out throughout, a big part of how we kind of grew was, you know, one of the very first videos that we put out was a video of me talking to Glenn Cassidy about him elevating a admitted child sex abuser to chair of an education subcommittee 
and that ended up on CNN. What was the thing that surprised you the most about that whole episode? I'll answer that in a second, Justin, but I remember specifically a commendable interview that you did with Speaker Cassidy. And, you know, you wouldn't let him get off the hook. I mean, he was, I just thought you were appropriately bold. Nobody ever raised their voice. Clearly, he didn't want to talk about it. It, it, That was commendable, and I commend you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that um, a lot. Cassida, he couldn't handle the power. He wanted it. I don't believe Mr. Cassida ever wanted to be governor or U.S. senator or whatever, but he wanted to be Speaker of the House, and he and he got it. The trouble started, and it was met first of all with with a, a lot of arrogance, in my opinion. And Mr. Cassida had you know people on his staff who seemed to be aiding and abetting the mean behavior. So you then start making enemies internally, and you know there's always scrapes and fistfights. I mean, this was extreme, and into the very last day. So I get to write my Tennessean column, which I really enjoy doing, and I try to make it a reported column. I had an interview with. Cameron Sexton, who is the new speaker. These two guys are like night and day. You know, we'll see, and we'll all disagree on different policy items. The only thing that I'll bring up already, because I do want to give him the benefit of the doubt, again, like they're just not doing anything about this bird guy. <laughs> like, like they're going to let this guy be in the legislature again. He hasn't called for him to step down. They said they were going to launch an investigation, and they haven't. Solemn swear on the House floor that they were going to bring this into the Judiciary Committee and they haven't. So I'm hopeful that he's taking his time and going to do the right thing. On a number of other things, vouchers, he was on the other side of Cassida, and he seems maybe more flexible about Medicaid expansion. So I'm with you for the most part. It just boggles my mind that it seems so hard for these guys to do the right thing when it comes to calling for David Byrd to step down. I mean, it's not a question of what this guy did at this point. Yeah. Well, on the other hand, the session won't even start in next week. You're right. So let's see what happens. An awful situation should not exist. One of the things that I've found the most surprising, how hard it seems to be for people to speak up when the right things are obvious. That's why I think the voices of Republicans are always really powerful in these situations. And especially when it comes to our president, you know, there's a lot of Republicans who have been vocal and spoken out. And, you know, I, I sort of find your voice to be nonpartisan. And that's why I think there's a power to it. Your column was called, I'm done being quiet. You said, this is the time for us all to speak out. Out, to be silent in this dangerous time has the feel of making matters worse. Anyone with a platform anywhere should use it now to speak up about right and wrong. And then at the bottom, you said, this is no longer about the tax cut or the stock market, nor your 401k. It's about our common good and the damage being done to our republic by a selfish regime using intentional disruption to sow distrust and disorder and to make America small. I remember reading it and thinking, thank you. That's pretty good stuff. Who wrote that? <laughs> um, no, thank you, uh, Justin. I appreciate yeah. it. I mean, I think it's about fear that leads to silence. Fear of Trump's temper, his lack of preparation for this job, his unfitness. For any of us who worried about, well, how would he handle a crisis? You know, that time has come, the Iran situation. You know, you talk about fear, and I guess I would just say to them, fear of what? Fear of losing your seat? What are you doing there if you're clinging to that seat? That's not what this is supposed to be about. This is supposed to be about being a voice for your people. If your voice is not their voice anymore, then you get voted out. I just don't understand what the fear factor is. He's not going to hurt you. He's not going to come after your family. He's just going to tell people to vote for the other guy. Like, is that really the end of the world? Is it worth sacrificing your integrity and your morality? This 
plane that went down in Iran that was shot down, that happened because we were on the brink of war with Iran. I'm not saying it's all his fault, but there's a direct line between the environment created and what happened there. So we're across the Rubicon at this point, and I just don't understand how people can sleep at night. Right you are. When we stop talking to each other and listening to each other, we're in real trouble. I don't want to make you say anything about Lamar, but I'm going to read what this guy said. Quinn Hillier, former congressional candidate, I'm told quite conservative. And what he said is, Senator Lamar Alexander enjoys a reputation for probity and for rising above political gamesmanship. He's retiring this year, meaning he will not again face the wrath of voters. He's free to stand on principle and has a choice as to what final legacy he will leave. A call to conscience from him in a high profile but soberly worded speech would carry great weight. It's time for him to step up, do the right thing by demanding a real impeachment trial with witnesses and to urge his colleagues to do the same. So I'm not going to make you say that, Keel. I did want to at least read that man saying it. The conversation is so non-existent. The people right in, by and large, don't get responses. And so that yeah. leads to questioning and loss of trust. And I'm an optimist still. How much of what this president does is done so for personal motivations? Did we hit Iran because it would help distract people from thinking hard about the impeachment? And all of this stuff, I think, has been simply made worse by this overt campaign of building distrust in mainstream media. And I just hate it. The book is Crossing the Aisle. Keel is working on another one, and we'll look out for it. Let's keep in touch. And I, I value what you bring to the dialogue in Tennessee. Well, thank you, sir. And thank you for having me on. Tennessee. Woo! Yeah. Tennessee. To Tennessee.